Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm David Rowe. On this week's episode, Justin Bassey speaks with Ian Hall, Professor of International Relations at Griffith University and a renowned India expert. Justin and Ian discuss the recent ministerial dialogue between Australia and India in New Delhi, which was only the second 2 plus 2 dialogue between the two countries' foreign and defence ministers. They talk about the priority given to maritime security, the East and South China Seas, the Pacific and climate change. They also cover India's stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Middle East and India's elections next year. Last week, Australia and India hosted the second 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue with Minister for Foreign Affairs Penny Wong and Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Defence Richard Miles travelling to New Delhi to see their counterparts. Now, the dialogue coincided with Australia's cricket victory in the World Cup. But highlighting how far the relationship has come, cricket was the entertaining small talk and secondary to the substantive foreign defence and economic matters that were the true focus of the 2 plus 2. It wasn't that long ago that such meetings were more dominated by what was commonly referred to as cricket, curry and commonwealth, in which the priority was the fabulous people-to-people links. As anyone who has read the joint statement could see, The discussions covered a range of complex issues from defence and security to cyber, critical minerals and climate. And there's no one better to discuss the meeting outcomes than Ian Hall, Professor of International Relations at Griffith University and renowned India expert. Ian, thank you for joining me on the Aspie pod. It's good to be with you, Justin. Thanks for the invitation. Excellent. And uh, thank you in particular for coming in on what is uh, a really stormy Canberra day. (laughs) It certainly is. Now, there's lots to cover. Uh, and we will get to a few specifics. Uh, but first, I thought it might be useful if you could share for our listeners your overall view of the 2 plus 2, its context and outcomes. So I think the 2 plus 2, the statement that was issued afterwards gave you a sense of just the breadth of the relationship and how that's all developed. Just really in the last five to 10 years or so, the 2 plus 2 uh, was, I think, also if we looked at the the optics of it, if we looked at the representation of it, uh, it was a very warm meeting. These are ministers that have met each other on multiple occasions before. I think it's true that our foreign minister has met with her Indian counterpart, Dr. Jai Shankar, more times than any other foreign minister during the course of 2023. So the the 2 plus 2 really did reflect that intensity of engagement and the the new breadth of the relationship. It definitely did. And it is... uh, uh really clear for everybody to see that whether it's the one-on-one meetings or the uh, mini-laterals, apart from uh, the two plus two with both ministers there, uh, the multiple meetings of the quad throughout the year uh, have also been uh, significant. Uh, And uh, the discussions uh, at the quad and the two plus two are very substantive, covering both the opportunity side of the relationship, but more and more delving uh, into the challenger side or the threat side, uh, which is which is significant. And in that regard, the, the joint statement contained lengthy and, in my view, strong language uh, on both countries' expectations of behaviour uh, in the East and South China Seas. Interestingly, I think uh, in comparison to the first 2 plus 2 in 2021, I don't think that first meeting uh, statement actually addressed the East China Sea. So, Ian, how significant do you think that language was around uh, both the East and South China Seas, uh, and in particular in a one-on-one Australia-India relationship? I think it's very significant. I think the other thing that's been happening in the background is 
Clearly, the four quad countries have been having conversations about providing public goods in the region, about cooperating in a whole range of areas in technology and climate and all of these sorts of things. But it's important to recognize, too, that in those meetings, they're sharing strategic assessments of some of the security challenges that are emerging in the region. Uh, and that's led to uh, a kind of commonality of language and commonality of focus between the Quad partners. Um, but that's coming out, very interestingly, not just in the Quad statements, but in fact, even more so in some of the bilateral conversations. So what we've seen over the last few years as well, and certainly in this 2 plus 2, is a, a big focus on defense and security relations. So it's, it's almost as though defense and security has been taken out of the quad conversations and is now focused very much in the bilateral conversations. Uh, and Richard Miles, the defense minister, was very keen to emphasize uh, in his public comments, uh, which were echoed also by his Indian counterpart, that defense is, is at the heart of this relationship. Uh, those are the words that he used, uh, the bilateral relationship, and that defense was a major focus of the conversations that they had uh, in Delhi uh, uh, just earlier this month. The real boost to those defense ties has, uh, I agree, has been uh, the real significant change in the relationship uh, and and uh, no doubt for the better. Uh, I think the region sees that and so often uh, the region only gets to see Australia in terms of defense in relation to engagement with the US or AUKUS partners. So that uptick in defense to defense Australia-India is not just good for the two nations but also uh, regionally. Uh, interestingly, as uh, many people uh, look at India and Australia and the Quad and think that India might be the country that traditionally doesn't really want to delve into those defence and security matters, at the meeting of the Quad uh, early this year during the Rosina Dialogue, it was actually Minister Jaishanka who reminded everybody that the Quad does maritime uh, security and awareness. And uh, on that, Ian, the joint statement is particularly fascinating from that maritime uh, perspective. It's clearly the maritime domain is an issue that binds and is binding the two nations. The, the joint statement uh, mentioned maritime no fewer than 18 times, uh, and there was an announcement within the statement of the next Australia-India Maritime Dialogue uh, that will be convened in 2024. Uh, what are your views on this maritime focus? So the maritime focus has been at the centre of the defence and security relationship almost from the beginning, uh, for good reason. We both have a substantive interest in the uh, in security in the Indian Ocean, but not just in the Indian Ocean or not just in the Bay of Bengal. Also through the Indonesian archipelago, also into those those choke points or entry points into the South China Sea, and then further out into the Pacific as well. We obviously have an interest in ensuring that maritime trade and traffic and so on uh, is secure in those spaces. But we have an interest too in the fact that the, the Chinese Navy is now operating those in those spaces, which it didn't do 15 years ago or so. And so that's emphasized and focused our attention and India's attention uh, on those various different maritime spaces, which we, we know reasonably well, but we can do a lot more uh, to co cooperate and collaborate on uh, understanding better through some of the uh, hydrographic research that we're doing, for example, through the maritime awareness projects that we're involved in bilaterally and through the Quad. Uh, and of course, we, we need to work together more closely, get our militaries to work together more closely in that space as well. Do you think, in the strength of the maritime focus, do, do you think it's just a bilateral issue and a strength of the bilateral relationship? Or do you think the fact that the 
references to not just the South China Sea, but the East China Sea and the references to maritime is also a message to the broader region, both uh, um, the partners uh, like Japan, uh, but also through the Pacific and Indian Ocean? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's very clear coordination here. Uh, and so I think what we've seen, uh, again, this has been developing over a few years now, but we've seen a, a, a situation evolve in which uh, areas of responsibility across this broad Indo-Pacific region have been uh, identified where certain countries or certain partners can can take the primary responsibility for security provision uh, as well as for leading on these maritime domain awareness projects and so on. And for us in Australia, for India, uh, we're looking much more at that Indian Ocean and then Indonesian archipelago space. Obviously, Japan has a greater focus in Northeast Asia with the United States, and the United States plays a major role with its with partners uh, like Australia and Japan, but also with the Philippines and other other players in that part of the world in the South China Sea and in the Western Pacific as well. So, there's been this tacit working out of uh, divvying up, if you like, of responsibilities in the maritime space. And do you think that's, uh, being, is that resonating uh, with those broader countries that they're seeing Australia and India both uh, work in practice, uh, but also uh, in the narrative that a clear message here in, in the references to maritime East and South China Sea is that uh, even without necessarily being blunt, that the two nations together, bilaterally and minilaterally, uh, are focused on the unilateral actions and the aggression of China in the region? Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, we've, the Americans talk about integrated deterrence uh, and, and about uh, trying to ensure that uh, allies and partners across the region are uh, able to focus their um, their forces in such a way as to potentially counter and certainly deter Chinese actions in, across the region. But there has to, but no one country can cover this entire space. And so we do need to work out, again, some, some sort of division of responsibilities in this area if we're going to achieve that objective of uh, integrated deterrence. I completely agree. And I, I think the division of responsibilities in amongst nations is clearly important, but this is the advantage of two plus two arrangements. Uh, it is more unusual to have both the foreign and defence side in the same room at the same time and the fact that they have complementary objectives uh, working together, that's also a very strong sign. It's not just defence on their uh, side and, and foreign on their side. Both of them in the same room with the same objectives, clearly very strong signalling. Look, I think that, you know, in the end, for India, for Australia, for Japan, for the United States, China is a full-spectrum challenge. So it's it, it's it's growth of its navy, its treatment of its neighbours is a poses some some big questions to us in, in the military sense. But China's also looking to to dominate and reshape the region in other ways too. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in the recent months about China's ability to dominate the green energy transition. Uh, it's just simply its control of 90% of the market for solar panels is it allows it to have a lot more heft in that particular space than other countries. And other countries like India, like Australia, are looking at that and working out ways of competing against China in those really important spaces. Uh, important spaces for us, but also important spaces for countries in the Pacific and Southeast Asia and elsewhere in the world. Do you think in that in identifying how to um, be able to compete with a country the size of China, as you, you said, the heft that China has, is that 
in part why there seems to be increasing synergy between India's traditional interest in the Indian Ocean, Australia's interest in the Pacific. It, it does seem uh, that Australia and India are doing more together across those those areas. And again, the Pacific uh, was a clear focus of, of the joint statement. For onlookers, do you think that there is a coming together, a meeting of the minds between Australia and India on uh, both the Indian Ocean and the Pacific? There's been a recognition for a little while that there are lessons to be learned from India's relationship with some of the Indian Ocean states like Mauritius, Seychelles, Maldives and so on, uh, and Australia's relationships with the Pacific. Now, of course, both countries also have their own interest in, in those areas, um, but, but there's been some dialogue uh, around the common security challenges that Indian Ocean states face and South Pacific uh, states face and whether or not there's, there are the lessons to be learned from, from those two different areas. India's also got an interest in the Pacific because uh, it recognises, as does China, as do other players, that there are, there are many countries in the Pacific, their UN votes matter. Uh, their own, there's, India is concerned to see the, those countries not become dependent on China in terms of things like internet provision, for example, uh, or become economically uh, dependent just in terms of trade, natural resources, and so on. Um, so India's got increasingly, increasingly it's identified that it has some interest in the security and, and the prosperity of the Southwest Pacific. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, absolutely right. And in fact, I think it seems clear that the last couple of years, India sees itself as a, as a global player with its size, its demographics, its interest in critical technologies. With that, we also know that India has uh, history, uh, different history with some countries like Russia than uh, Australia and Austra uh, Australia's allies like the US have. With India becoming a more global player uh, and wanting to be influential globally, where do you see India at the moment uh, with Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine? Has it evolved since the start of the war? Uh, where, do you, where do you see India there? Yeah, look, I mean, I, th I think more the, the broad picture that you've painted is absolutely right. So, I mean, Dr. Shashank has talked about India being a leading power. What we've seen this year with India leading the G20 is India acting as a convening power uh, and having a really interesting agenda around trying to get Global South voices uh, heard at the G20 in climate transition and a whole bunch of other things. It has been forced through the G20 and through other mechanisms to confront this question about Russia and Russia's current war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's future role potentially in uh, what India would like to see as a kind of evolving multipolar order. I think the debate about Russia in India is not yet settled. I think in other parts of the world, in other countries, uh, even in Southeast Asia that have strong defense relationships with Russia, like Vietnam, for example, I think there's been a perceptible shift in the position. Uh, I don't think that's so true in India. There's that, that defense dependency uh, means that they have they believe that they have to maintain strong relationships with Russia for the next 30, 40 years or so. But all of that said, I think there's some evidence that it too, that it, Delhi is trying to look to what a post war and a post Putin future might look like for Russia and what kind of relationship it would want then with, with Russia. Uh, and in the background to all of this as well, you know, it is very concerned about Russia's growing relationship with China and it's looking for any kind of leverage that it can find to try and move Russia a little bit away from Beijing. Uh, and that's going to be a, a struggle, but it, still India is committed to that task.
Yeah, I, I, again, I agree. And, and I think probably while uh, in the Cold War, not aligned uh, as it was, it still lent towards the Soviets. I, I think there's more and more evidence that notwithstanding the ongoing dependency at this point, that they recognise the vulnerabilities that creates uh, their dependency on, on Russia, particularly for defence. And their leaning is more and more towards the US and the Quad partners. And we see that in a range of other fields, critical technologies being one of them, where clearly they want to actually be a leader uh, and work with US and partners uh, rather than being a follower and dependent on either Russia or China. Do you see their desire to be a leading player in these fields as, as also uh, driving India closer to the US uh, and allies and US allies rather than Russia and China? Oh, absolutely. I think there's no doubt about that. You know, I, I, no, India is realistic about Russia in the sense that it, it recognises that, you know, it has his kind of uh, legacy geopolitical heft. It's still a nuclear power. It has a large military uh, and it has enormous um you know, gas reserves and, and oil reserves and so on. But at the same time, it's not an economic partner of choice. And prior to the war and the big influx of Russian oil into India, the economic relationship was really trending downwards. There was very little cooperation on the technological front, except in some areas of defence technology. And even there, there were signs that India was becoming tired and unconvinced that Russia was the partner that that it wanted. So, so India's pivot towards the United States, which has been going on now for almost 20 years or so, there's there's no sign that that's going to stop. And, and in a way, the more conversation that happens bilaterally and in the Quad and so on, the more those conversations go on, India recognizes more and more opportunity in the United States, uh, which still has, of course, you know, cutting edge universities, an incredible startup uh, uh, space, and many, many Indians flowing into Silicon Valley and other parts of the, the American economy uh, and playing really important roles there and, and making a lot of money and, and, and being right at the technological edge. So India recognises that the United States is really the partner of choice. And I think similarly, the US and Australia recognise that uh, India really has the potential to be the next tech superpower. So uh, any arrangements and collaboration that we can do is of uh, benefit uh, to us, uh, particularly if we can uh, work together on on standards and, and rules. In terms of uh, India's pivot to be a, a global player and, and to influence the globe, you know, apart from the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war and, and what you discussed there about uh, India's history uh, and dependency on, on Russia, how have you found India's response to the Israel-Hamas war? In, in my view, India and uh, in particular Minister Jai Shankar uh, has, they've done a very good job of being able to say that they completely support Israel's right to defend itself against terrorism. Obviously, India has a history of fighting terrorism as well, uh, so it, it's very meaningful for them, but they have been very strong in their support there of Israel, uh, while also being uh, very clear on saying that they still view the pathway forward to be the two-state solution and a Palestinian statehood. Uh, with security for all. So it, it does seem to have been uh, very clear and smart language there. Is that how you've seen it? How do you think India has responded to Israel-Hamas? So India w was under some pressure domestically and internationally around this particular issue, but quite quickly, quite nimbly, it struck quite a nice balance. It's still very much in favour of a, of a two-state solution. It's still very sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause. And historically, of course, India didn't recognise Israel uh, diplomatically until the 1990s. 
but it's it it, it recognizes too that that Israel is a really important partner. It's also a really important partner in in technology as the United States is, but it's a very important defense partner and security partner too. Um, Israel can provide niche defense technologies that India needs. It is able to trade in those technologies without some of the restrictions that are imposed on on the United States and and therefore on U.S. allies and others. And so Israel has, has, has now acquired this much greater space in in to India much greater importance to India in those two areas really on the, on the defense side of things and on the technology side of things because of Israel's burgeoning really creative IT industry as well there's a lot of collaboration going on between the two countries so it's been keen to to strike a balance and i think it struck a pretty good balance between the two again as you said, affirming Israel's right to defend itself, um, whilst at the same time saying that it would prefer to see a two-state solution in the region. What's been interesting uh, to follow is the issue of terror listings. We have absolute clarity from Australia and the US uh, elsewhere that Hamas has not just carried out terrorist activities, but they are actually a terror group uh, and specifically listed as such. Where do you see India in that, uh, understand that India has not yet formally listed uh, Hamas as a terror group, but we do have an interesting uh, relationship or interesting development with Israel uh, listing terrorist organisations as well of interest to India. Where, where do you see that aspect? Look, I think we, I wouldn't be surprised if India did move at some point to list Hamas in that way. Uh, as you've said, uh, you know, Israel has listed Lashkar Toiba in particular, um, a major group that, that India has wrestled with for quite a long period of time now that's based you know, in largely in Pakistan. Israel, I think, uh, seems relatively comfortable at the moment with, with India's slow pace towards listing Hamas in that way. I think to some degree, I think India is watching to see how this conflict develops and, and how it plays out at the end. Um, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if India did end up listing Hamas as a terror organisation and, and even before the end of the conflict as well. I think things are changing and shifting in that area. Yeah, very interesting. Definitely one to watch. Just briefly, as uh, we come to the uh, end of our time, just if I could return to India domestically, in the first half of next year, uh, there will be uh, the elections, uh, of course, and Prime Minister Modi uh, is undoubtedly uh, the raging hot favourite. But uh, have you got a view on uh, um, what might be interesting aspects to look out for uh, within the elections? Uh, and how do you think uh, the outcome of the election might impact uh, India's uh, future foreign policy? Well, so good questions. I, I think it's very clear that, that Narendra Modi, the BJP, are not taking this election for granted. Uh, if we look at the, all of the fuss that was made about the G20 and about India being a respected major power, a convening power, a lot of that was for, for a domestic audience to show that the government was really delivering uh, one of, you know, the, delivering the sense that, that Indians really want to be respected in the world. We're going to see some major developments at the beginning of next year as well. The big Hindu temple at Ayodhya in the disputed site where there was a mosque is going to be opened up 
in around the 20th or so of January. After that, there's going to be uh, potentially a quad leaders meeting. Uh, and it's even the case potentially that, that Joe Biden or even some of the other quad leaders might attend the Republic Day celebrations. That's all going to play into the, to the Modi narrative, the BJP narrative about India's place in the world uh, and, in, and the respect that others have got for India and India's uh, shining, you know, India's playing that leading role. In terms of the election itself and in terms of the domestic politics, again, they're not taking this for granted. They won the last election with 37 or so percent of the of the popular vote. They know full well that a united opposition could pose some significant challenges to them. The opposition parties are talking to each other and they have formed this loose coalition, but they're not yet at the point of agreeing that one opposition candidate will be put up against the BJP in each one of the electorates, which would be a game changer because it, it, it potentially would mean that, that in a first-past-the-post system, the uh, opposition will win a lot more seats than they have done in the last two elections. So if if they can coalesce, if they can keep that coalition together, which is by no means uh, guaranteed, then we could see a really contested election in, in 2024. And uh, the outcome perhaps being a little bit more uncertain than, than at the moment it looks. That's very, very interesting. I think a number of our listeners might be surprised to hear that the, there is a possibility that it could be a contested election. So it will be an interesting first part of the year. And you used the word nimble before to describe India. Again, I think it's been part of its development that uh, you're right, they can sit back and watch, but they can also act quickly when they need to uh, as part of what is happening early next year, notwithstanding the uh, focus on the internal elections as you said, that there will be several international-focused major events, the, the Quad being held in India, really significant to have President Biden and the other Quad leaders uh, in India. And the External Affairs Minister, Jaishanka, will continue uh, his uh, very active overseas trips to uh, both influence the region and take his views to these events. We'll have the Indian Oceans Conference uh, in uh, early next year. We'll have, as was announced recently, Rizina uh, in, in Australia. So it is interesting that we are seeing in India, notwithstanding a necessary focus on domestic issues, still able to do two things at once uh, and have a focus internationally. Is that something that uh, we, we haven't seen historically and that they are able to maintain now a focus on international affairs? Oh, absolutely. We've seen governments not that long ago that really struggled to maintain focus on foreign policy. Uh, and we saw some of the relationships uh, being damaged as a consequence of that. Uh, and I think that was true of the last government, actually. Um, the There was some deterioration in the relationship with the United States. And part of that was just purely because effort wasn't being made, the energy wasn't there. We didn't see the same kind of uh, nimble, you know, fleet-footedness that we now see. But, and I don't know really how he does it, how, you know, Jaishanka does it. I don't know how his people do it, given that they have this very small foreign ministry, a very small group of diplomats, but they are, uh, they are everywhere. Uh, and it's not just in terms of building relationships and maintaining relationships with major states. They're also still pushing on their engagement with the global south uh, and trying to influence global south opinion. And part of that's to do with competition with China. And part of that is also just to, to do with India's broader objectives to be that leading power in international politics. Uh, well said. There's clearly in the next little while a lot to look forward to from 
uh, the election impact on foreign policy, terror listings and India's ongoing response to uh, Israel Hamas and their longer term response to trying to uh, remove their dependency on Russia uh, and continue to get closer to quad partners. Ian Hall, Professor of International Relations at Griffith University. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, again on the Aspie Pod uh, and look forward to you doing so again in the not too distant future. Thanks, Justin. That's very kind. Thank you. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.